Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's culture podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Kate. And apologies if I'm a little on the husky spectrum. I'm uh, limping out of a kind of small bout of man flu, as is traditional for this time of year. I don't know if you saw the recent New Yorker cover, Kate. Mm. Um, It's just a brilliant calendar of uh, a January calendar. The The days of January, hangover, lose keys in snow, still January... Slip on ice, knit self scarf, cold, grey, wet, uh, flu, 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 still January, <laughs> slip on ice, why me, Lord, cabin fever, dentist. <laughs> That's Roz, Roz Chast's January uh, calendar. We thought we'd brighten things up by refraining from using our second names now because hopefully you're all so familiar with us that um, we can be Tom and Kate the same way one of our subjects today is just Beck. Not Beck Hansen or Beck Campbell, as he was born. Beck once featured in an animated fight with other one-syllable pop stars beginning with B, and he fought Bjork. And then at the last minute, Bark arrived by time machine and beat both of them. So, As well as Beck, we are going to be talking about When the Wind Blows, the animated feature film adapted from Raymond Briggs's book, which came out in uh, 1986 and is just being reissued on DVD. And we'll also have our umpteenth non-aversary, the subject of which will be revealed later on. And this one has been suggested by a reader. An actual... A reader? (laughs) Maybe she means a listener. Do you mean a listener? She's a a reader. So we've had some feedback. Let's hope she's a reader as well, but she's also a listener and she's she's got in touch. Maybe she she probably is a reader in her life, you know. I think so. A definition. Yeah, I think she's literate. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe she's just a writer, but not a reader. So, Kate, you turned me on to When the Wind Blows, but you'd never actually seen the film. It was um, a book in the school library, curiously enough, in secondary school. So it was the comic strip, as it were, that was then turned into film. And it was um, quite a strange thing to flick through because as a child, the DNA of Roman Briggs was the snowman. And then here came a lovely, colourful book in the same packaging, similar kind of cute faces which was about a subject that you sort of barely understood. And this, was, this would have been in the mid-90s as well. So in terms of its kind of um, presence in the, the news fabric, it wasn't really being talked about. It was very frightening to read. And I remember particularly at the age of about 14, a big double-page spread pastled out in red of a, of a train just careening off the side of a cliff and falling into a river. And that was what my memory of When the Wind Blows was. So I thought maybe we could, um, given its its 
deluxe reissue by the BFI this month. Maybe we could talk about it today. So the story is James and Hilda Bloggs, uh, they're given this sort of everyman blogs. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess that's kind of a play on Briggs, I suppose, because they're yeah. sort of partly modelled on Raymond Briggs's parents. Well, he has the same face as Gentleman Jim, doesn't he? Yes. And yeah. then he was James. So this yeah. is presumably just a continuation. Yeah, yeah. which was an earlier book that, that I was obsessed with as, as a child. But it's this couple in rural Sussex. The film came out in 1986. So in the midst of kind of Cold War paranoia and fears of impending nuclear catastrophe. And it taps straight into that, really. Um, Jim comes home from the library one day and has been reading the news and decides that they need to follow some government advice and start preparing for a nuclear attack, which then comes. It was part of a, a wave of sort of what if they actually do it kind of cultural pieces that came in response to the nuclear threat. So there was the famous um, QED documentary, A Guide to Armageddon with Ludovic Kennedy. And then that inspired Threads, which was the sort of, you know, what if nuclear war hit Sheffield city centre? And then this came along afterwards. So these pieces were actually a response to hard politics, in a mm. sense, the, the development of tactical nuclear weapons, whereby you wouldn't destroy the entire planet, but you could use them strategically. I, you might be able to destroy one million people or two million people. And Jim, the old the old chap in the film, has actually been down the public library reading up on this stuff. And you know, to give you an idea of the way the dialogue works, he's, he's explaining the the folly of using a weapon that might kill three million if you only want to get one million. Think of the energy wasted, and then it's like more ketchup, love. <laughs> so the whole of the script is is written in this sort of the the rhetoric of the government information that was being handed out to people at the time, the leaflets, the idea of um, you know, building your shelter against the wall, it has to be at 60 degrees. Well, how do you get 60 degrees? I'll go down to get a protractor from the shop. Oh, they've sold out of protractors. This idea that everybody's like trying to work out these angles themselves. I don't know about you, but it was eerie watching it because in some ways it feels like it was set so much longer ago than it actually was, particularly because these people were so uninformed and I think that nowadays you wouldn't have a representation of the common man that was so kind of naive and trusting in the political situation and in the world. But partly it's because they didn't have the information. He was going down to the library to get this and he was a kind of blitz survivor and he believed that the government had, you know, his best interests at heart. And if this were made today, this would be a completely different story. This would be a hyper-informed Facebook ranter who was there kind of behind his sort of shed saying this will never work what on earth are they doing let's hear a little clip from it before we go any further this is from when the wind blows just reissued on dvd by the bfi we commence the construction of the fallout shelter immediately dear. now we must do the correct thing in a coral refuge looks quite cozy doesn't it dear i've heard those doors aren't marking the wallpaper james not saying we've got to stay in that thing for two weeks. Well, yes, dear. Ours not to reason why. Now, we must do the correct thing. Look on the bright side, eh, Dux? You're right. One of the beautiful things about the way this is written is the tightrope balance between ignorance and knowledge in in particularly in Jim is that he's absorbed so much information about about this and, and is he clutches his um, protect and survive handbook as if it's an absolute bible and he keeps on repeating this um phrase the inner core or refuge which is this this shelter that he's following instructions as to how to build and yet the implications of it seem beyond them and yet they've lived through two wars haven't they and they and in fact there's a sequence where 
they talk about the blitz and and the bombing and and it's wholly romanticized isn't it i suppose they would have been given their ages they would have been kids they would have been kids at the time and and maybe that was true of a lot of people that you know the awful can you imagine the anxieties that the parents must have had and to the kids it's it's an adventure of bedding down in your anderson shelter and he's got pin-up girls yeah. sort of plastered on the walls of his anderson shelter he does know that he knows about hiroshima he knows that thousands died in hiroshima and yet, yes, the absolutely horrifying potential of this bomb that he's preparing for doesn't quite occur to him. It's shot in the most extraordinary way, isn't it? It's directed by an um, American-Japanese director called Jimmy Murakami. What they did is it's not a straightforward 2D drawn animation. They built, because most of it is set within the house, in fact, it almost all is set within the house, they built a model of the house and filmed that, then printed out stills of the model mm. and then superimposed the character animations on, on top of that. So the sofa and the cushions are actually photographs. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. the doors are photographs. And then there's, there are sort of amazing little details like when they really start to um, feel the full effects of the radiation towards the, the end, you know, you just see from his point of view at one point and you get this fuzzy soot-stained ceiling and then for a second it's pulled into focus and then it goes out mm. again and you know that that's his failing eyesight but the, the the saddest thing of all is the the fact that every time his wife complains about you know blood when she's gone to the toilet or the blotches on her legs he goes well that's piles that's perfectly normal for for our time of life or that's that's various veins he says that's ordinary for middle-aged people as well and this kind of dogged insistence on sticking to science and you know uh evidence or anything like that and in the end of course the, the rhetoric just collapses into a kind of jumbled up prayer as they're lying in the shelter the other thing i thought about the shelter one thing i thought a it sort of worked right that was the weird thing about those ridiculous door shelters because it did stop them from being hit by falling implements from their house the other thing is why on earth weren't there any ends on either side of it so the idea of protecting people from radiation when it's open on both ends and basically all the air is just swirling around them it's the strangest thing they could have gone a bit further than that surely the government when they were working these things out well part of the thing about this advice is it is slightly farcical in in the face of the kind of catastrophic event they're talking about so for instance he builds this shelter out of doors so he's taken the interior doors off their hinges in the house prop them up against this wall to make the shelter the next piece of advice in the booklet is close all the doors <laughs> there, are, there are no doors there are no doors left yeah the slow destruction of their living quarters is one of the most tense things about it isn't it so you've got these people who think it's going to be absolutely fine but they're they're sort of pulling their own living space to bits and just i don't know it's the kind of um it's sort of like, yeah, the destruction of, of, of normality while they continue to talk as though everything's going to be absolutely fine. Absolutely. And it's very much that kind of classic English domestic sphere of order. And, and the, the wife is the bringer and keeper of order in the house. And it's actually very moving, you know, after the bombers struck and, and they emerge from their shelter, you know, her concerns are the curtains and the and the cushions, you know, I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to get this stain. She's out, such a kind know? of 70s housewife, isn't she? <laughs> I found that I found that really moving. Um, yeah, and also actually, as it as it develops, she faces up to it more. He clings to this idea that everything's going to be okay a lot more than she does. So they, their roles sort of shift a little bit. Yeah, she gives up, but in a way that's kind of very honest and and very sad. Whereas he's kind of still repeating his his mantras and stuff. I mean, it's funny because. 
I one thing that really struck me thinking about it was we have been, you know, under a nuclear threat for quite a few months now, but there is still this sense that we don't imagine what it would be like if it happened. And I wonder why that is. Is it because we can't imagine it? Is it because we're too removed or is it because we're too complacent? But the idea of the reality that these artists were were picturing when they were making these documentaries and these films, it's almost remote. I can't imagine anyone doing that at the moment. Yes, I mean, for I think particularly for our generation, we've got very little kind of point of reference for this for this stuff. Whereas a generation that came of age during the Cold War will have had that fear of these events, which were kind mm-hmm. of described to them in in ways that kind of seem wholly inappropriate for for children. And um, you know, I, I looked at some of these government guidelines. There's a there's a video on in the DVD extras to be broadcast in case of military escalation it's so bizarre it's this kind of it really taps into the the tone of the film it's it's very sort of matter of fact you know this is how you build your refuge if you live in a caravan you, that will not provide much attention so <laughs> consult your local authority and then you know these things go on to like talk about making toilets out of buckets and chairs name tagging dead family members you know burying <gasps> really? them yeah it's kind of very very hard to, to maybe we wouldn't get first. that information now maybe the whole thing would just be so out of our control and we're so kind of i don't know um we've, we're so lied to anyway by our government so mm. there wouldn't be any warning oh that was another thing that um really chilled me was that you know he's He's saying this is to his wife, this is a real threat, this is a real threat. And suddenly, of course, there's an announcement on, on radio. For we interrupt this broadcast, missiles have been released towards the UK. They will be arriving in three minutes. <laughs> and that really struck me that that's the kind of time frame we'd be talking about. It's just about enough time to get under a, yeah. a door. Yeah. That was the, the helplessness of it sort of encapsulated, really. You're right. I mean, politically, it is incredibly timely, but just artistically as well I just find it such an extraordinary achievement as they're suffering towards the end and they're getting very ill and you almost feel like you can you can see their kind of eyes receding into their faces and they get these kind of bruises developing and shadows around their eyes and actually their eyes are just dots the whole way through because that's how Roman Briggs draws faces but they manage to give an extraordinary expressiveness to them bizarrely this is the only the um, according to the liner notes, this is only the fifth full-length British animated feature ever made. What? Um, so no. you have you have Animal Farm in 1954, nothing until Yellow Submarine in 1968, <laughs> nothing until Warship Down in 1978, and then Plague Dogs, which was another Richard Adams film. I personally think they've missed off uh, Wind in the Willows, the Cosgrove Hall, um, mm. the, the sort of proper film version of that, which I, which I think was So how many have there been since then? Very good question. It, doesn't, it still doesn't feel like it's still a not a thriving, It's still not a thriving industry. I <laughs> yeah. think the reality is that making a feature-length animated film is so much work. Mm. It's just, it's it's an unimaginable amount of work. We don't have our, our big Disney's and Pixar studios no, in the same way. we don't, but... or, or our Ghibli's. Yeah. Um, we should very briefly say something about the music because it has this... Um, the title song is by um, David Bowie. Isn't mm. it? Um, the arrival of big uh, actual sort of real footage of big sort of army trucks arriving at night with Bowie's When the Wind Blows song over the top. And it's, that's, I don't know, to me watching it for the first time, having only had that association with the picture book, it just, it had such an edge. It sort of made my hair stand then a bit. I thought this is so adult, you know. Yeah. But of course it always was adult. And this is the weird thing that at that time there was such a shared culture 
between children and parents. You didn't have your YouTube channel to watch as a child, your Disney channel, your little screen of your own. And even if you didn't watch something like this, you would have been 100% aware of it the same way as with Threads. You would have seen the trailers, the discussion mm. programs. We talked about Ghostwatch a few months ago. It was almost deliberate. You were catching. I mean, mm. Briggs must have known he was catching a huge child population with something mm. like this. And why not? Because if you're if you're under this kind of threat and if the government's handing out these ridiculous leaflets, then the children themselves should have been involved in that mm. in that fear. It just It's just quite a, a frightening thing. You're right, though. Bowie puts it in quite an adult context. Um, and originally, Bowie was hired to um, to do the whole score, and then he he pulled out because he was too busy. But he, although he was a huge Raymond Briggs fan, which is why he signed up in the first place. And indeed, if you ever have opportunity to rewatch The Snowman, as I, with two very small children, have ample opportunity to rewatch The Snowman, Bowie pops up in this lovely live action introduction which i'd completely forgotten about playing the adult version of, of james the little boy with the scarf and um, saying <laughs> i remember this one christmas um, he was a bit of a loose end in the 80s I so, yeah. <laughs> oh, i've got space in my diary raymond i'll fit you, fit you in any more animations um, going any more labyrinths yeah. so so roger waters picks it up and does this kind of uh past, this sort of pastoral acoustic guitar and things and then he comes in with a very kind of political song mm. at the end the one really odd part of this film is um the wife's dream sequences oh yeah when she she blows a dandelion yes and then some like little angels float up in the air yeah it, i think it might be her kind of romantic nature and i think there are some lovely um just after the bomb goes off actually there's lovely flashbacks to their courtship and marriage and them dancing and i think you do get a very powerful sense of that their sweet their relationship is and and how they are allowed to retreat to being children they're, they're having a camp out aren't yeah, they? they're, they're yeah. having a sleepover yes. and they're trying to tell each other stories and at one point he puts his um head on her lap and says imagine i'm a baby and tell me a story because <laughs> he's read in the in the in the sort of government information that you need to keep stimulated if you're if you're behind one of these shelters because you, you know it might affect your brain if you're not stimulated when the Wind Blows is reissued on DVD by the BFI, there is also a screening mm. coming up. On Sunday at the BFI um, with, uh, I believe, the producer <clears throat> is talking There's some kind of Q&A. Jimmy Murakami sadly passed away. I don't know if Raymond Briggs is going to be there, but he's still around as far as we know. So, yeah, watch it and feel depressed. I went to see Beck in situ in a very posh hotel near Maidstone in Kent, just before Christmas, actually. Why um, Kent? Well, it's apparently it was the hotel, uh, it wasn't the closest hotel to the filming of Later with Jules, but it was the poshest. Oh, right. <laughs> which gives you an idea of the, the life Beck lives, famous slacker Beck. Um, it was a strange hotel that was actually set up by the um, Judith and Martin Miller, who used to write the antiques guides in the 1980s and 90s. So it was a weird house full of you know, oil paintings of various skill and sort of strange stone lions and stuff like that. And then Beck was in this room with at least two staff, I think maybe even more. And it was that horrible moment where as a journalist, you have to chuck them out. You have that moment where you think, I can't do this interview with three people watching me. This is not acceptable. So you've got to kind of try and be really brave and just go, um, I'm assuming we're going to do this just you and me. And then they left. So that was fine. But at one point, because of course he is a a Scientologist, and I was told under no account to mention Scientology. At one point, one of the staff came back in and just tipped some water into a vase for no reason whatsoever and then left again. 
hopefully to see that we weren't we, we were getting we weren't on. talking about Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> I think if, he, if I'd asked him about it, he would have uh, just, you know, stared at me and not said anything. What was he like? Was he very non, non-committal? He's very polite, um, very reasonable, really, really tries to answer your questions. So it, almost to, um, almost kind of in a rabbit, in a sort of tunnel vision type way. So I asked him, you know, what he used to be into when he was 10 years old and he really wanted to answer this question. So it was like, well... Star Wars, um, Devo. What else was I into? Climbing trees. I was, and then somebody interrupted. And he's like, "No, no, I was climbing trees." <laughs> so he's very. He gives um, you know, he puts his his energy into it, but he's also got this this odd feel about him because he is a you know trained in Dianetics and he has the famous kind of stare. He doesn't. I was writing this in the piece. He's it's not a confrontational stare at all, but he's just able to gaze in your eyes and never need to break it. And it has the effect in you, whether it's out of politeness or kind of wanting to kind of keep it going, that you stare back at him. And my eyes were dry by the end of the interview. And at points, he kind of just floated in mid because I was sort of semi-hallucinating. So sort of quite a, quite a kind of controlled person, but he had a very bohemian upbringing, didn't he? I mean, quite, like, yeah. quite chaotic in a way. He had one of those upbringings that just is never good for a kid because their parents are so much cooler than you. So his mum was... Um, running with Warhol at the age of 12. And she was in a band with Janet Kerouac, uh, Jack Kerouac's daughter. Amazing. They even released a, a single, it was called something like Go, 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 Ringo. And it was a kind of ode to the Beatles that they sang in these English accents. Um, and then she was in a film, Warhol put her in a film called Prison because she'd been in juvie. And then growing up with that sort of, I think the parents divorced, they were growing up in a poor part of LA, but just that sort of sense of bohemian pedigree, it can be hard to... To live up to, I think. Mm. And I guess he maybe sort of drew on that a bit, capitalised on it, on it in the beginning of his career. It's like there's something a bit kind of, you know, that sort of Bob Dylan legend of like pretending that you're kind of just a hobo slinging yeah. on trains and rocking up. But there's there's some some a bit of ambiguity about his early career, whether he was kind of really broken sleeping on floors or whether exactly. he was actually kind of. And there's a, there's a, many different stories have been told about you know did he know his father well were they estranged yeah. this kind of thing and he he went over to to New York on a greyhound at eighteen, and he by the sounds of it fell out with a lot of people mm. because he was saving the money that he was earning in the YMCA and he was sleeping on people's floors for free. So he obviously wasn't pay, wasn't offering rent to his newfound friends. And then they just decided he was a rich kid hoarding all his cash and they kicked him out on the street and stuff. So there's kind of a quite an embattled sort of story there. He's, he finds LA alienating. He finds New York alienating. No one helps him. And to me, you know, even the slacker label, he sort of talked about as being a kind of a derogatory term um, put about for these kind of kids of the coming of age in the 1990 recession and he mm. said it turned me into a clown and I had to fight against it and mm. stuff and um, it sort of it all makes sense to me that somebody would then involve themselves deeper in Dianetics and Scientology if they have that sense of like adversity against the world and alienation. I've sort of got many good things out of um, reading your piece and, and thinking about Beck over the last over the last week but one of them is that um, in re-listening to to Loser and and reading about that point in Beck's career, I finally worked out what the lyrics to Loser are, which <laughs> is one of those songs that I've heard and sung along to thousands of times, or many times as a teenager as well. And there's a bit at the beginning that I was just went, 
Oh yeah, what is that bit? It's soy un perdidor. Which means? I am a loser in Spanish. Okay, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> I can't tell you how pleased I am to now have that in my, in my lyrics arsenal. And the whole um, reason famously that he called it loser was that it obviously has like a rap element to it. And it just said that this, I'm such a loser, a white guy trying to sound like Chuck D. And then that just became the thing. But obviously it's sort of caught up in a cultural moment, a kind of Generation X yeah. link later idea. It's a great song. It still, it still sounds really good. And I was thinking back to what I really liked about Beck when, when I started listening to him as a teenager. And Loser was huge, obviously. But then we all kind of passed around copies of, of Odelay, which is his maybe even his third or fourth album. He did various kind of like weird lo-fi, lo-fi things to start with. And it was very original at the time because he took a lot, you know, you mentioned Chuck D, he took a lot from hip hop. There's, mm. there's, there's, rhythmically, it's hip hop. There's lots of sampling in there. There's a bit of kind of talk rapping, but then he's brought in country and folk and, and punk as well. And um, it's a kind of mashup that he really, he really makes his own. Mm. And, you know, as you say in his piece, he's then, he's then gone on to sort of pinball between all these sort of, in, a, in this mm. very restless style uh, way between all these different styles. So you had kind of slightly more pensive record after that, Mutations, and then um, Midnight Vultures, which had Sex Laws on it, which is all kind of Prince and R. Kelly infused yeah. funk. And, and then um, Sea Change, yeah. uh, which you mentioned. He was the sort of um, iPod generation before the iPod generation in a way. So, you know, there was that whole, I remember that whole wave of people in the, um, do you remember Beirut? And Devendra Banhart and people mm. like that in the in the mid two thousands who were sort of effortlessly using horns and and hip hop techniques and mixing them all together in a way just when the iPod thing was just starting. And the funny thing about Beck now is that he feels it's like he was ahead for so long that now he feels like he's kind of following. It's weird his new record Colors. He sort of said, "Oh yeah, I was inspired by um, Get Lucky by Daft Punk and Happy by Pharrell Williams." I think. It takes some confidence for somebody of that level to say that, like, basically the pop music that was in the ether is what inspired me to make this record. And he got Greg Kirsten in, of course, who's a kind of go-to co-songwriter and producer. And he said that the reason is that making records is a secondary thing for him now. He's not that interested in it. And it reminds me what Moby said as well, like, who wants to hear the umpteenth album by a 50-year-old man? Yeah. It's sort of more about the live thing and these sort of more abstract ideas about connection and joy and all that kind of thing with Beck. Yeah, you mentioned um Get Lucky, but the the song on that record, Up All Night, I mean it is yeah. it's you know <laughs> it's taken the central lyric of of Get Lucky, uh Up All Night to Get Lucky and and sort of transposed it into into a into a new song. That's pastiche, I suppose, and you've got to be confident to pastiche, haven't you? I was thinking what is the because we've talked a lot about Greg Kirsten on this podcast, weirdly, because he produced Liam Gallagher. He produced um, the most recent Foo Fighters mm. album. He's obviously very famous for his Hello and, and the stuff he did with Adele. I can't quite put my finger on what he does that's so... And he's obviously brilliantly successful. And, and this, this is a very kind of confident, brilliantly assured record. Um, the, only, the only thing I could think of was um, my daughter has these toys. I think they're part of... Um, franchise but they're called shimmer and shine <laughs> and those are the two words that come to me with it for a greg kirsten production they've got there's just a even when he's doing sort of scuzzy garage rock riff there's just a 
there's just a shimmer and shine to yes. it. That, that kind of gives it this sort of <laughs> everything very is quality. kind of um yeah sharp and defined mm. and everything sort of seems to justify its space in a funny kind of way on the records and and also I think structurally as a songwriter there's so much Beatles in terms of those kind of very um, distinct, rounded, kind of colourful 60s melodies and stuff that he can just bring in. And it just kind of gives uh, gives the music an injection of kind of, oh, yeah, this is legitimate pop. This is yeah. this is the way we know pop music to be. And obviously, if Beck wanted to make a kind of ray of light type album, not as in the Madonna, but, you know, as in Sunshiny album, and he's the person to, to call for mm. it, I suppose. There was, I read somewhere that it was, delayed because he finished it around the time of Trump's election and it was seen as kind of completely inappropriate for the international <laughs> too, too mood. happy. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> hilarious. can't be true because surely like, I, I mean. <laughs> I don't know. They do worry about, I mean, the, you don't, you don't know what scheduling meters, meetings go on at Warner or whatever. Like they do. I think yeah. They and actually maybe it look, makes you look like an idiot yeah. if you release that, that the day music. After, the day after Trump's inauguration. Moments. <laughs> I mean, it's great. It's very effective. The, the slight problem I have with that kind of Greg Kirsten approach is that what it tends to flatten is songwriters' lyrics. And Beck was always quite a fun lyricist. Mm. And like the stuff on Odelay has this great sort of Ginsburg-esque Americana quality to it. It's all, you know, like ho- hobos rocking up, you know, like devil's haircut love machines on the sympathy crutches, discount orgies on the dropout buses, hitching a ride with the bleeding noses, coming to town with the briefcase blues. <laughs> Got a devil's haircut in my mind. And then uh, now, you know, many years later on on this record, it's I just want to stay up all night with you yeah. and dreams, <laughs> duh, duh, dreams, she's making me high. It, it, it kind of flattens that. Yeah. It flattens the, the oddness of the writing. But I think it does um, work for him given that he wants to do this stuff live and he basically wants to create these sort of mm. parties and it is weird going to his I mean I don't remember much about his gig in before Christmas but I just know that there was a sort of ramping up of this the slow ramping up of this ecstatic sort of feeling and it is a bit like a Prince show it turns into a kind of a semi-improvised party towards the end and if he's if he wants to just get that as he was talking about in the piece feel that sort of connection which is such an odd thing for mm. somebody as cold as Beck mm. in the flesh is kind of craving this connection which he will never find <laughs> um but yeah obviously it works on some level for him on when he's on stage he just wants to You'll be loved find. he wants to love and be loved Beck's album Colours is out now he's definitely playing the All Points East festival later this year because I'm going so oh I'm right that. where's that in Victoria Park oh, in okay. London. <laughs> Just down east, the road. You know, not east is east east, but just <laughs> east London. Keep it local. We had a brilliant suggestion for a non-aversary, which, as you'll know, is our slot marking the non-significant non-anniversary of a non-culturally important event. Actually, this is quite a culturally important event. It's 38 years since the expression shabby chic was created and this was sent to me by naomi hepworth on twitter so thank you naomi created in 1980 by the magazine the world of interiors and then became a kind of proper lifestyle through the work of the british designer rachel ashwell who made furniture in this in this mode and made a store in california in 89 which she called shabby chic and 
it's gone on to it's incredible that the... it's that old it just shows how long things take to sort of filter down into the high street because i feel this is a 90s thing <laughs> yeah or still today the preserve of the rural gift shop so you yes. know the kind of piece of the driftwood oval saying family on it <laughs> or best friends or something hung up by a chain is is actually the kind of you know the last version of shabby chic but yeah it originated with people doing the classic distressing their furniture by painting it white and then hitting it with chains like <laughs> it's supposed to be a political subtext to it because um it was uh, the furniture of the bohemian movement by those unable to afford posh furniture that's interesting isn't it because as with any kind of supposedly bohemian movement it then becomes a totally sort of middle class indeed upper middle <laughs> class thing where you know you're you're paying top dollar to have things that look like they yeah. they are bohemian and distressed. But also, we may sound like we're being sneering, but both you and I, shabby chic is in our homes. Well, I, I when this first came came through, and I was talking to Naomi about it on Twitter, I thought, God, that's it's such a dated it's such a dated thing. And then I look around my flat, and <laughs> there's the like seventies sideboard, and there's the kind of white painted wooden mirror and you know yeah it's just it's it's very very hard to escape it i have a giant shabby chic wardrobe that came in a flat pack um, (laughs) that is i mean it's really nice you know it's not (laughs) i chiced my own chest of drawers as a child in the 1990s looking back and i hadn't realized this but i got a a very shabby kind of duck egg blue paint and I yeah. painted my chest of drawers and then I added some gold leaf stars to it. <laughs> it's still there in my mum and dad's house, but yeah, I thought it was a great piece of, of interior design. Gold leaf stars, is that, a, is that a particular hallmark of shabby chic? No, I think that's, yeah, that's more like the kind of um, grunge. <laughs> Grunge side of shabby chic. The, the twee yeah, grunge shabby chic crossover. What a successful... Furniture movement. I can't think of anything that's that powerful. Well done, Rachel Ashwell. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. I've been Tom. And I've been Kate. And we will be back with you in two weeks' time. Two weeks' time, when we will be talking about Hamilton, um, Loveless, the Russian film nominated for an Oscar, and also the Fatberg, part of which has come back to the Museum of London. The Fatberg, of course, is the kind of giant splodge of sanitary products and grease um, that and probably condoms that was found in the sewers of London having congealed because of people not flushing things away properly um, part of it has been cut off and is um, on display so we're going to go and see that rarely have I heard Kate more enthusiastic than when talking about this fatbug I've been checking so. in on it for months when's it coming when's fatbug coming finally we know that's something to look forward to And we leave you, as always, with the energetic strains of Godspeed and Pistol Jazz. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.